In this episode of the Crumpled Papers podcast, I am joined by authors and podcast hosts Carl and Laura Forehand to discuss their experiences stepping outside the safety and security of organized religion, and both the freedom and uncertainty that can come from leaving what you know behind. This week's conversation is based around the topics and themes in chapter 15 of my book, A Jumble of Crumpled Papers. If you enjoyed today's conversation and haven't read the book, the link to pick it up is in the description below. If you're a first time listener, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to our intro episode, episode zero, to get brought up to speed on what this podcast is all about. But without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Crumpled Papers podcast. My name is Austin Knoll, and on today's episode, I am joined by two very special guests, Carl and Laura Forehand, who are the co-authors of the book Out Into the Desert, as well as the co-hosts of the podcast The Desert Sanctuary. Carl and Laura, thanks for being here, guys. How's it going? How are you? Yes, thank you for having us. Good to be here. Awesome. And we met for the first time several weeks ago when I was on your guys's podcast, The Desert Sanctuary. And now we're switching it up and you guys are on my podcast. And I think it's funny because I thinking back, I believe on your podcast was the first time that I actually told anybody that I was going to be starting a podcast. It may have been not on the podcast, but just told you guys behind the scenes. But it was interesting because now here we are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, indeed. So before we get into anything else, I want to start off by asking a question that I ask every guest on the show, which is, would you please give us a general overview of yourselves and your backgrounds, particularly in regards to church and faith? Yeah, Laura's from upstate New York. I'm from Oklahoma, and we met in Texas, (laughs) where I was a computer programmer and kind of dedicated to that life for a few years, and then decided for, for whatever reason, once we got moved to Omaha, that I wanted to be a pastor. I don't know where I got that wild idea, but for 20 years, <laughs> I was a bivocational pastor and built another career as a in an ethanol plant where we made alcohol. So kind of an interesting life. But towards the end of that 20-year stint of pastoring a few churches that all did well, they're kind of church plants, I just started questioning my faith and uh, kind of what got us there. We encountered some church harm, some some hurt mm-hmm. while we're in, in that, and we described that in the book. But as we came out, we tried to hide out in a big church for a little while, and it just wasn't working. We were getting in fights on the way home, so we <laughs> stepped away from organized religion. Laura could tell her own story, but she was kind of out before me. But since then, we've been, been trying to process it. The best way I know how is through writing. So I write and do a blog on Pathios, and now for the past 240 episodes, we've been having conversations with people, and that does so much for us because we hear their sacred story and we get to listen and learn, and um, that's kind of what we've been doing the past past few years is just just deconstructing everything that doesn't make sense anymore and kind of seeing what's left. And in the process, we had to heal a lot. We had to go inside and find, you know, once you get inside and start examining everything, you have to examine everything. And and some of that is unpleasant and it's hard, but we've done some of that work. And then we just try to try to help as many other people as we can share what we're learning. And hopefully that helps somebody when they come along behind us. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, I like Carl said, I'm from upstate New York and I grew up like not in a very uh, high demand religion, I guess. Uh, I was, I grew up Lutheran, so it was very, I don't know how you would explain it, but you know, we just kind of went to church every Sunday and really didn't have any really true connection. There was no talk of like, you know, you need a relationship with Jesus, ask Jesus into your heart. None of that until uh, after Carl and I met and got married and then we started going to the Baptist church. And so that's when like, I kind of questioned, you know, everything about my religious upbringing and thinking that what I had gone through in my younger years was not right. It was not the right religion, I guess. So, you know, and and in my opinion, it was a high demand religion with lots of rules and expectations, a lot of them unspoken. So there was just, for me, a lot of, it just created a lot of trauma and harm. I would say, especially the women in the church, just because I feel like they used me kind of as a way to get to Carl. And when that didn't work, Mm. then I was, you know, kind of ostracized, not included, pretty much treated as if I wasn't even there some days. And we had started three churches. So these were all churches that were like about to shut the doors. And, you know, they looked at Carl as kind of the savior, if you will. And So they all started out really great, but to look back now, I just feel like there's a systemic problem. I did kind of, uh, I would say I emotionally disconnected with the church while Carl was still a pastor. Um, I kept very quiet about it because I didn't want to be the one to bring his ministry down. But as time went on, even though he, you know, even while he was still a pastor at this, the last church we were at, I became a little more vocal, but still really didn't express the amount of trauma and hurt that I was experiencing in the church. So it's only been probably recently that, you know, and through our book that we wrote that we've really been able to kind of talk about some of that, not knowing that he had been going through maybe his own version of church harm, but it was different from mine. And so this kind of gave us a vehicle to kind of talk about where each one of us was. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to say, I really love how the book is written or how it's structured because every chapter has a whatever topic. And then Carl has a section that he talks from his experiences and perspectives. And then Laura, you have your own section where you (laughs) talk about your own mindsets and whatever of that exact same time in your life or topic, which I think is really, really cool because it allows you both your individual space to give your, your specific mindsets rather than having some kind of middle ground where you both agree on it. Because some things there, there were a lot of stuff you had in common, but then there were some things where you did have, have pretty different experiences or, or the way you navigated something or the outcome or how you thought about it. So that was a really cool way to leave room for that. So you guys are joining me for episode 15 of the podcast, which is based around chapter 15 in my book. And I believe this chapter is the shortest chapter in my book. It's about maybe five pages. And it is simply a recounting of the first Sunday that I didn't go to church after I left. And I kind of describe in the chapter how me leaving wasn't some definitive, I'm gone, this is my last time here. 
it was different, whereas it was almost experienced in the past tense, where it ended up being a thing where I had to look back and go, oh, that Sunday was my last Sunday. Not, I'm here and then I'm gone. It's, oh, I didn't realize until I was already gone that I'm not going back. And I'm really glad that you guys are on this episode because your book is entirely about kind of that stepping out from the familiar context of a church lifestyle, a lifestyle and schedule constructed around belonging to a particular church or religion or faith, which also includes, you know, even the mentalities and the ideas and beliefs and practices and leaving that behind and finding yourself in what you guys describe as the desert, which is a metaphor for mm-hmm. the, the mysterious land beyond the walls of that familiar context mm-hmm. where you've had to let go of what well, either chosen to let go or been forced to let go of certainty. Uh, there's a lot of questioning and doubt and, and uncertainty of, you know, where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. So why don't you guys give us a little more context into what the book is about, maybe what led you to write it, etc. Give us a little bit of a bigger picture from what I've started to talk about a little bit. I'm going to let Carl talk about it because really this was his brainchild and it probably took him a little time to uh, coax me into helping him. So, (laughs) (laughs) All right, yeah. It's interesting that you talked about, you know, your first Sunday when you stepped out. I can remember that for us. We tried for a couple of years to go to a big church and in my mind was always somehow I can fix this. Sure. I tried to start a contemplative prayer group inside the church and I ran into some some issues, but it was still the thing of just more and more we were feeling like we can't do this anymore. So we came home and sat at home on, well, first we went across the street to the Methodist church for a few weeks and that didn't work either. And then we started just sitting on our porch. We have a wraparound porch, but I would say it's, you know, it's changed from us. We're fighting on the way back and forth to the big church then we started to sit on the porch. And I'd say it was uncomfortable at first. Sure. Like we're kind of supposed to be somewhere else. Or, but I think we're, we're getting more where we, we don't think about Sunday or Saturday that we need to be somewhere else. Uh, it's gotten real comfortable to be where we are. So we wrote the book starting about that time, about three years ago. When COVID was just starting. And we just tried, started to, to try to assess, or I did, is religion viable, you know, organized religion viable for the 21st century? And I just started to reflect back on some of the things we'd experienced and how I was processing all that. And, and it ended up being the first 10 chapters were 10 things we wanted to evaluate, like is evangelism the main thing? And the second chapter is are we addicted to hmm. church? And then looked at the money. One of the chapters is called How Sex, How Religion Ruined Our Sex Life, obviously about the purity culture and things like yeah. that. And would Jesus go to church? And so I was just trying to do that evaluation to see if I'm in the South, we say faking yourself out, don't fake yourself out. And I wanted to know, is it really uh, something I need to do? Is it something I can do without? How are we doing out here? Honestly, how are we doing out here? Yeah. And then the last part of the book is more like, how to thrive outside of organized religion. We use the 
Beatitudes kind of as a guide and looked at those Beatitudes a little bit differently. Um, say, can we thrive? Where do we really get our community? You know, where do I get my worth and things like that when, I, when all my beliefs have changed? So I did that. And then Laura came behind me and, and wrote, as you said, her own opinion. Yeah. <laughs> our own way mm -hmm. and we didn't other than minimal editing we didn't you know govern each other's right what we were saying and, and it ended up a lot of stories came out yeah of actually happened and, and I think that's what makes it meaningful and I'm glad Laura was involved I was reluctant at first because I'd never written a book sure yeah I mean I'd written papers in college and things like that but and I was very I was still very hurt mm -hmm. But what I found in finally agreeing to do it, one thing we we had to agree upon was I was going to write when I felt ready to write. So there wasn't any pressure, but I also was going to write my truth, too. And I found that it was really the beginning of my healing. I just really, you know, looking back prior to that, just was in a very bitter, dark place. And I knew I didn't want to stay there the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> and so knowing that I needed to do something, but I really didn't know what it was. And it, it really turns out that being able to share my side of that story was very healing and continues to be a form of healing for me. Yeah, I, I definitely resonate with that. I think a big similarity between our two books and something that I really loved about your book, um, I guess, and mine too, is that especially the first several chapters are full of just and, and are formed in a way around just these contemplative ideas and questions that we are working through and processing and asking ourselves as we're writing it. We're not five years, 10 years, 15 years removed and have landed on an answer to the things that we're asking. We're asking them as we're writing them. In most cases, not entirely sure where we're going to land with them. We're not giving people a, oh, here's a 10 step to fix this, and this is wrong, and here's ways to fix this or leave this. It's, no, is, hmm, is that healthy? Is that the right or best way we could be doing that? Let's think about it and completely open to being maybe proven wrong on what we assume our landing place will be. Like the right. book isn't written around the answer, meaning every question we ask is going to land to prove this idea right. I believe the way that your book is so authentically written that if certain questions you asked had landed in a way mm -hmm. that you weren't expecting or didn't quote unquote support your quote unquote thesis, you would have still put it just the same. You would have said, yeah. oh, you know what? That part that I assumed wouldn't work about religion or church or whatever, it does work. It is a good thing. You would have totally said that. Mm -hmm. right. And you do in places. Right. And as a reader, for me, reading your book, it, it opens me up to being more willing to hearing you out, whether I agree or disagree with the various things you talk about, because I don't feel at the very beginning like, oh, I'm going to be pushed in this direction no matter what. It's, oh, they're 
in very much the same place I am going into the book is, oh, I have these questions. I wonder what I think about them and what others think about it. So let's talk about it together and see where we land. And what you were saying about the healing aspect of it, it's really true. Which, which, when I wrote my book, I didn't expect, I didn't write it to heal myself. I wrote it just because I knew it was a dialogue that other people were having and wanted to have. I had no idea that it would be such an integral part in my own healing because I think there's some, some kind of element having to do with having to write full sentences, meaning in our heads, we may have a whole bunch of ideas and hurts and pains and processes, but we don't always have to intentionally write complete sentences to really verbalize what we're thinking. And when in a book, I have to have complete thoughts, I have to, to end sentences, meaning I have to come to complete conclusions about maybe not the bigger ideas, but that one sentence. And that helps me process because it helps me finish a lot of sentences that in my head were just half, which allowed me to come to so many healing conclusions to things. I think that's why um, I didn't want to feel pressured to write it in a certain time frame because I really wanted to think about how I felt about it. That was something that was really lost as a woman in the Baptist church is what I thought about anything um, other than, you know, raising my kids. And now I want to take that back because, you know, they also have an idea of how I should raise my kids. So, you know, really my, my voice wasn't honored for so many years, not from Carl, but from the religious aspect of it that I really wanted to take time to think about what do I really think about this? And I, I wanted to speak from a place. I mean, I wanted to like, not try to sugarcoat anything, but I also didn't want to just speak from a place of woundedness, if that makes sense. Yes. Like I didn't, I didn't want to just, you know, come out guns blazing, but I also didn't want to be like, but it's okay. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> it's not okay. <laughs> it's like a, it's really is like a growth journey. Right. Yeah. I mean, while, you know, we were editing this book, which was like two years after writing it, I was still like, yes, I agree with that. And yet I'm also moving into different spaces and ideas and things like that. So I feel like, you know, that's, that's one thing I wanted to get across that there are things that I don't know, and I'm okay with not knowing yeah. about all of it, but staying curious. I think for me was really important and knowing that I'm not stuck in a certain, you know, way of being like Mm -hmm. the growth continues. Yeah. The whole thing about curiosity. When I was on your guys' podcast, the, the title that you guys gave the conversation was holding on loosely because it was all about, you know, not trying to hide the questions and uncertainty, but also not trying to, to white knuckle and hold on to our beliefs so hard and so tightly that we don't allow ourselves to seek better, deeper, more authentic answers, or even allow us to, to doubt or question at all because of the, maybe the fear of where that might lead us. Exactly. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, curiosity is, I believe, a very big and important element. Okay, I have another question for you guys. So. What was the easiest thing to leave behind 
when you left your church and your ministry and what was the hardest thing to leave behind? Hmm. At, at first I missed preaching. I really did. Hmm, yeah. Because that, that is one of the addictions, you know, not just the people are addicted to coming there because you prepare a sermon and a concert for them, but also performing in that environment is real addictive. I think what I missed the least was my whole thing was revolved around fitting in. Mm. You may not can tell, but I'm, I used to be hard. My eyesight used to be poor. Now it's <laughs> terrible. But, <laughs> um, you know, so there's always, my name was always four eyes or four back foot, <laughs> things like that. And so in my mind, I needed to fit in and, and that was, you know, how I approached high school and, and college and and business in a new town. I went from a real small town to a real big town. So I wanted to fit in. Yeah. Well, with church, when it came to church, when I got back into church, then it was all about fitting in again. And I found out that one key component of a church planter, which was essentially what we were, is that you're really good at fitting in. And so that skill, that dysfunction or whatever, made it where where I could be a good church planter because I'd go into we went into like our very first church was in a town of 250, mm-hmm. you know, and we built a church to about 100 just by fitting in. Were they all and, people that lived in that town? Uh, no, there was a few that yeah. kind of came in from somewhere. I was going to say that's know. like like half the town, almost half the town. <laughs> yeah, I used but, to have fun with my. Mega church pastors, because I'd say, well, we have 60% of the town. How are you doing? You know? Yeah. The funny thing about that, though, is like a rumor got out that we were giving away trips to Branson to yeah. get all these. Other- <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how we did it. Like, that's how we that's did it. Funny. Like, I don't know where we're getting this money to so, hit people to Branson. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a tattoo now on my arm. It was the very first tattoo. I, I only have two, but I got it when I read Richard Rohr's book you know, about the second half of life, mm-hmm. living the second, and I wanted to live the second half of life authentically. Hmm. And I appreciate that when people say that about me now, because that's the best thing is now I can be mm-hmm. who I am instead of having to be what they expect me to be. I appreciate that now. The One of the best things now is just being able to be myself and developing that. Like you said, when we wrote the book, it, it wasn't what we thought, it was what we felt. Mm. And when we wrote about what we felt, then what we thought began to change. Yeah. So we, we just experienced that and wrote it down and thought about it and talked about mm. it. Then we began to change. And when it moves toward an authentic self, and, and we learned also about presence, you know, being where we are, yeah, uh, not just who we are. It's one of the things I like best now is you know, being myself, learning to be present. That's what I enjoy so much now is just the freedom to to grow and yeah. heal, like Laura said. Yeah. So for me, okay, this is going to almost sound like contradictory, but I think for me, the easiest thing, like when we finally were, you know, well, I should say, because I mentally like had left church a long time ago, but when Carl was like, okay, I can't go back. I can't go to church anymore. I think the easiest part for me was to leave the weight of all the dysfunction. So I think it's interesting that you use that word, Carl, dysfunction. But the hardest part for me was leaving what I thought was connection and community 
because it was dysfunctional. And so like, I look back and think there was a part of me that was addicted to that dysfunction. And to be fair, that came before I came into the church. Sure. But so that was like, I felt very isolated and very alone when we left the church because, and this goes all the way back to Carl having a stroke a year ago. No one in all of our churches, except for maybe one woman that I've kept in touch with all this time, even reached out to check to see how it was, to see if we needed anything. Nice. Instead, it was like our online community, the people that we've met since, you know, we've started the Desert Sanctuary. Those are the people that reached out. So at the time when we first left, I did feel feel very alone felt like we were the only ones that were going through, you know, what we were going through and not, not just together, but really myself, because I feel like we experienced leaving in very different ways because we had very different jobs, for lack of a better term, um, while we were inside the church. So, you know, it only makes sense that we would experience very uh, different forms of isolation, rejection. So yeah, so the easiest part was I didn't have the weight of all that dysfunction. And yet that was the hardest part because those dysfunctional relationships were like, I'm alone all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the thing about a dysfunctional relationship is that it's still a relationship. The relationship is still there. Like it's not a great right. one, but it's still there. It's still a relationship. Something. And to leave the dysfunction, I have to leave the relationship, but the relationship's what I liked yep. about it. Yep. And it's having to kind of rip the entire Band-Aid off when part of it was still covering the wound a little bit. Yeah. In this chapter in my book, I talk about just how weird it was that Sunday because I wasn't withholding to any schedule. I didn't have to be here at this time, or there was no small group before church. There was no, I don't have to be at a church service. There's no after church lunch to go to with friends from the church. You know, all of these things that were structures in my life since I was born, if not for many, many years. And this kind of segues in the chapter to more of a reflective state where I, I talk about. All of the aspects of my life, my day-to-day schedule and different things that weren't quote-unquote church-like in terms of part of the organizational church, but that ended up being, in a very real way, church to me. And it's only kind of after leaving church that you realize all these other elements that also you're leaving behind. You're not just leaving behind the Sunday service and the Friday night Devo and the midweek and the small group. You're leaving behind a lot more things that you realize, that I realized I was experiencing church through. And I left when I was about 18 or 19. And so all of these things that I can think of that were other parts of my life were all having to do with friends and high school and middle school. And some of these things were having to do with my house. My house for middle school and high school and even some college was the house where all of my friends would go. You know, we had the sleepovers and the parties and the get-togethers. You know, there were people there all weekend, every weekend, and sometimes half of the other days of the week too. We had this back room that was against the garage that we transformed into, into a DIY kind of movie theater with 
the Xbox hooked up and we watch all the movies. So a big part of how I experienced church in those years was being back there with my friends, you know, either playing Call of Duty or Halo and eating pizza or watching a movie. And sometimes, you know, either just laughing hysterically and having a great time or really having some, some deep talks. And that happened all the time back there. And they were inter- intermingled. These experiences were not separate occasions. Usually, they would happen simultaneously. And in this chapter, I just reflect on the fact that now that I'm gone, I mean, I still have many of these friends, most of them, but the context is different. Where before, they'd be at my house sleeping over on a Saturday because we would be able to go to church together on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And on Friday night, they'd be at my house because it'd be after a Devo. So they'd just come to my house afterwards. And these parts of our lives were just intermingled naturally with the church schedule and the things that our church did and revolved around that almost. So now that I wasn't there, it was different. Mm. And I was also in college during these years where life just changes a lot because people go all over the place and our schedules are different and people, you know, drift apart and you find new friends and new contexts. And it was just very clear to me that this transition marked the end of one part of my life and the beginning of another, not just physically, but also in the way that I defined and the ways through which I experienced church. Mm -hmm. So going off of this, I want to ask you, what did church for both of you used to mean or symbolize? And now having gone through what you have, what does church mean to you now? For me, most of my post- high school experience with church has been as a worker. Hmm. So very, very soon after we started, when we first were dating or got married, mm-hmm. we were going to a Baptist church and we, you know, very soon I was a seventh grade Sunday school teacher. When we moved uh, to Omaha, I was in school, <laughs> in a church school and in a, in a Bible, Bible college um, at you know, going at night, and also I was a deacon in a Baptist church there. Then began teaching and preaching, and uh, moved into our ministry, which lasted almost twenty years. And so, it was always about it was always about doing, and that that was how my life was oriented. So, um, I always figured I could outwork people or outthink them or something. I, I I knew if I just did it hard enough, I could outdo people. What I what I came to to realize after I left church was there was some pieces. We always tried to do small groups, but the brand that I came from was very bad <laughs> at at getting the essence out of a small group. Where in a small group, there's potential for you to have real conversations with people sure. that really sure. help you heal, and that's that is the good, good part of community, right? Mm-hmm. But we're not very good at getting to that. Yeah, we put. You know, we put a million dollars worth of infrastructure in the way of us getting to that. The organization always comes first. The organization takes a lot of money and a lot of time and energy to keep going. Yeah. And we very seldom get down to those those intimate moments like you're talking about. If we could re-engineer it, let's start over without all that stuff and see if we could just have pizza and play video games and talk to each other. That'd be a church. <laughs> Sign me I, up. <laughs> I said, yeah, and I said not too long ago, maybe instead of uh, listening to so many sermons, we should have been listening to each other. Mm. And I think the key more and more and more, I think, is listening, going inside, trusting, learning to trust yourself and listening to each mm. other. 
is is what we need more of. That's that's real church. And like Laura alluded to, we say that church is community and we say that it's family, but many times it's a faux family. It's kind of it's it it doesn't have the real deep things and it bypasses a lot of that stuff. Church would be if I would get the courage to go talk to my neighbor about coming over for dinner. Yeah. And we get to know yeah. each other better. That would be real community mm-hmm. because they're probably a little different than me. They may not even believe what I believe. And we might have some real conversation and develop intimacy that helps heal. But we go for the easy pre-programmed thing mm-hmm. that may not be even be doing the mm-hmm. job. Yeah. What I've noticed from, from my experience, from people who I've heard from since they read my book or the podcast or whatever is... And this is, of course, not all churches, but a lot, more than it should be, a lot of churches are structured in a way, not structured to do this, but just unintentionally, this is what the structure does, is kind of creates an atmosphere for the easiest way to feel connected to people, which there are many cases where people have genuine connections with people. I have tons of real friendships. My parents have tons of real friendships, right? It's a thing for sure. But for just as many real connections you have, there seem to be many cases where it's very topical, surface level. But yet, for some reason, you can feel misled into believing that they are deep when they're not. You know, there are people you can sit next to during the Sunday service, and the pastor will say, hey, you know, say this to your neighbor, or say hi, or high five, or whatever, and you do, and you look at them and go, oh, I know them, I've known them for five years, 10 years, 20 years, I know this about them, their family, I've been to their house, whatever, I know them, we're good friends, and then 10 more years go by, and at some point you realize, man, I don't know a thing about that person, right. besides right. the very topical things that are mostly external, and a, maybe just a glimpse of something that they struggled with last year or, or something they, they, had, they had to go through or ask prayer for or something, and that's it. And another thought I had quickly while, while you were talking, well, you were talking about doing and that your entire life was structured around doing and how your job was going to these dying churches and having to revive them, which you talk a lot about in the book. And I don't know why this thought, I mean, it feels like every episode of this podcast, at some point, I find some just weird comparison that I bring up. But I was thinking, man, you're kind of like the miracle grow for churches, <laughs> right? Like you're kind of put on the dying plant, the dying church, and are expected to just do the things that make it healthier, that revive it, that bring it back. There's no nuance to it. It's these Miracle Girl has this set of ingredients that do these things. And this pastor, you, who goes to this dying church to revive it, does these things that are expected to help it. And I'm sure there was that expectation that I'm sure you could have gotten. I mean, you talk about being addicted to these things. I'm sure it's a thing you can get addicted to is being expected to be the person that has the answer, to expected to be the answer. Mm-hmm. You are, in many ways, the answer. Yeah. Anyway, those are, those are two kind of separate thoughts that don't really have a bridge, but I thought of them both separately. But I, I want to ask you kind of this. You guys have the book and have, you know, 
well over 250 episodes of your podcast at the time of recording this. And for me, since my book came out, the amount of people that have reached out, the many people that I've had conversations with about church hurt or spiritual abuse or doubt or theology or whatever, the amount of communication of connection and the depth of that communication and connection has been to a greater level than I ever experienced in my church growing up. I feel like I've learned more, you know, if not strictly Bible knowledge, which I also have for sure, but in, in the ways that God actually works in people and in my life now around me. I've learned more about how God works and personally my connection to him. And I have felt more connected to people and to God than I ever did because it's authentic. There is no pretense that people feel like they have to fake anything. So it's just bare. It's just real. The only structure is the intention and the willingness of the people who are talking to each other. That's it. You know, there's no, oh, I'm here to be connected. So let's be connected. Or if we're not, then we'll just feel like we are and act like it. No, it's I authentically want to reach out to you, talk to you, listen to this conversation, engage in this, and authentically seek deep connection with you, deeper awareness of God, etc. Yeah. In our second church, there was a lady that was about 80 years old, at least 80 years old. She taught the main Sunday school class. There were a couple of side ones, but she had taught it, you know, all of her life, 60 years probably. Wow. It was so much so that she was a Sunday school teacher that she was even allowed to teach the men in a Baptist church. Oh, yeah. So she she was the matriarch of the church. Her husband built the church with his hands and so on. So I decided to do a like a Wednesday night experiencing God, which is a Baptist Bible study. It was real popular. And in my mind, it was really good at the time. And she came. And so in, in experiencing God, you start talking about, you know, what's your personal experience with this? Can you share that? And I, I looked at her and asked her to share a personal experience. And she looked at me like I was, had a gun to her head. Yeah. She had, she had never in 60 years of teaching uh, and Bible study and all of that church work, she had never shared the deep stuff. Yeah. Anywhere. You know, that was just, it was not what you do. Yeah. And not everybody feels exactly like that lady in organized religion, but it sure. tends to be what we kind of what we kind of lean toward mm-hmm. is let's get through this without, you know, anything embarrassing and so on. So we can kind of default to. Yeah, absolutely. Laura, go ahead. Okay. So you asked like what did church what did it used to mean? I think that church was just a way for me to try to find what I was missing in life. Okay. So like I told you that I grew up Lutheran and there really wasn't any kind of, there was no, like, I don't ever remember any type of like having a relationship with, with God. So having this relationship with like, God was there, he's out there somewhere, but there's no like connection with him. And then fold into all that. I had a father who an earthly, my earthly dad um, is non-existent. Like he's just kind of cut himself out of me and my sister's lives. So I think for me, 
um, what I was expecting from church was this authentic relationship with God and with others. But there was no, like, I think it's really hard to go into that. Like I wasn't in a healthy space, like mentally, just there's a lot of unresolved trauma from my childhood um, relationships and, you know, dysfunction and things like that. And then trying to, you know, expect this God who I'd never really had a relationship with to somehow miraculously fix it. But that really was what I thought church was going to do for me. Yeah. Now, how do I see it? Exactly what you guys are talking about. I feel like church is, for me, it's what takes place outside of the building. It's not what takes place inside the building. Having those like you said, meaningful connections and healing from trauma and all those things that I had been missing for so long, you know, I don't see it happening in inside the church. So uh, for me, this is, you know, if I had to label church, this is church, just having these conversations and learning from one another, being open to like, we don't have to believe the same thing. We don't, we don't have to, um, but just making space to hear each other's stories like that to me, if I was going to label anything church, that would be church to me. That's a big element you touched on there. And something I can relate to a lot in my own church growing up is, I know it's not for every church. There's tons of churches. I think that, that, that don't prescribe to this, but I believe from my experience and the people's experiences that I've heard of, it is perhaps the majority. And if not, way more than it should be, which is zero, is the idea that even if hypothetically this is a church that, that I know exists, that, that has real authentic connection and genuine relationship, there are still churches that have the downfall and downside of everyone having to believe the same thing, the exact same thing. Right, homogenous. Yeah. Right, exactly, homogenous, yes, homogenous. And not always, sometimes homogenous is good. Like in a bigger picture, we are a group of people who have the same values and same standards, maybe to an extent. But the, the downside of hom- homogeneity, I don't know, being homogenous is when, for example, many, like the church I grew up in, it didn't stop at, oh no, we're unified because we're all Christians. No, no, no. It was, there are within the boundaries of, Christianity, there are right Christians and there are wrong Christians. There is this belief of Christianity that's right, this one that isn't right, and to this degree that it's right and this degree it's wrong, but we in our church believe the right ones, which is a, you know, a, a, a lucky coincidence, if you ask me, that we have all the ones that we believe are right. right. But growing up, it was those things that our church believed, its members had to believe. And if our members didn't and varied on that, Oftentimes, they'd be looked at as weaker Christians, as straying off the path of needing to be talked to and counseled and rebuked and whatever. And it's crazy to me thinking back, you know, high school, middle school, even, even already in elementary school, there was these seeds sown into me and my peers from the leaders in our church that you know, we would go to a camp, a church camps in the summer, and where we'd be with other regions of churches that even fell under our same organizational umbrella. So we were all part of the same larger church organization, yet we were still 
given the implications that many of these other churches, church regions, were, were not 100% correct like we were. And we were given the impression that, you know, while it wasn't always stated so directly, and sometimes it was, that the people that were members of these other churches, other regions of our church, were threats to our faith. And these people were Christians like us. They followed the same God we did, but apparently not. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it even went down to separating the people, the churches that were in our same exact organization. So, you know, forget it for churches that were not. They were, they fell off completely of the scale of acceptability or validity, right? Mm -hmm. So that's such a big idea because at the end of the day, and I, you know, I hope people can get to this point of realizing at the end of the day, we are all just people looking for God and asking questions. Mm -hmm. That's it. We will always have stuff right. We will always have more things wrong than we have things right. Mm -hmm. And the second we believe we have it all figured out and they don't, we miss the point entirely Mm -hmm. and shut ourselves off to authentically seeking deeper answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, I got two more questions for you. The first is revolving around the idea that your entire book and podcast are based off of, right? The desert, this undefined, what's defined as this undefined space, both physically and metaphorically, of the spiritual space you find yourself in that's not defined by any physical walls of a church um, and no structures of, or boundary lines in what is acceptable and not to be believing or asking questions about. It's simply the freedom to ask and seek God without the expectation of a certain prescribed outcome. So I just want to know, what is the biggest thing, or what are the biggest things, plural, that you both have learned about God, church, faith, yourselves, spirituality, etc., as a result of your own personal journeys through this desert? Well, we were talking earlier today to someone else in about 240 episodes. We hear, you start to hear common words and common themes emerge, and you probably doing 15 podcasts, you're yeah. going to start realizing this. You, you start hearing the, the people that are growing, the people that are thriving, we call it in the desert or the wilderness or whatever metaphor works for you, but they're discovering a couple of things. Number one, they always say it started when I went inside. Mm. I wasn't looking for something in the sky, uh, something out there somewhere that I can't identify. But I found something authentic when I went inside. And number two, when I started to trust myself. Yep. We were so told so long, you can't trust mm-hmm. yourself, you know, and so on. But literally, you can't heal until you acknowledge what you feel. So <laughs> I love that. Trust. I've got to start to trust what I feel is something authentic. It's mm-hmm. it's a felt sense of your trauma from the past. It's it's what you're genuinely um, wrestling with right now, and it's where that inner knowing is that's going to lead you home and mm-hmm. um, or lead you, you know, on the on the journey. However, you want to think about that. I think that's for me what emerges. Two big words for me are also presence and authenticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, my third book's a 
a journey towards presence and authenticity. It's called being. And then uh, we just continually talk about it. I say, be where you are, be who you are, and be at peace. So um, be authentic and present. Mm-hmm. And those are those are two other big words, things we've been learning. Yeah, and I don't think if you <clears throat> if you are not going inside, I mean, there's no way to really heal in my opinion, that's been my experience that there's really no way to heal. I'm not going to, you know, I've tried, I have tried praying in a way (laughs) I have tried going to Bible studies. I've tried having people lay their hands on me. I've, I've tried it now, you know, maybe the religious population would say, well, you just didn't have enough faith. Well, that's your fault. That's part of the problem, (laughs) you know? So going to me, going inside is where for me, true, true healing is going to happen. I have to acknowledge my trauma and my wounds in order to heal them appropriately and covering them over with Bible verses or bypassing them with platitudes or, you know, just treating me as if I don't have enough of something. And that's why I'm in the situation I'm in has never been helpful to anyone. Right. Yeah. I, it was already in my head before you even said it, because this is episode 15. I would say, and if you've listened to this part, if you're listening right now and you've listened to some of, if not all of the podcast episodes before this, you will know that I'd say 12 of them so far out of the 15, the conversation, every chapter is a different topic, very distinct, but the conversation at some point comes around to this idea of not being able to trust yourself. That seems to be one of the most common catalysts for this, these lasting wounds and damage. People are taught that their heart is deceitful, that they can't look inward. They have to look outward because if they look inward, they'll be led astray by their own desires and wrong, right. whatever. So they are taught to, by default, seek externally and to ignore and not trust anything that originates from inside of us. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, is that, yeah, there are many things that you can gain externally that are helpful and healthy and whatever. But the only way that something externally can affect you is by applying it internally. Mm-hmm. It's such a necessary and vital part of the equation, regardless of whether it originates externally, internally in the first place. Mm-hmm. Some of what's true, true about your trauma is, is that your body can have a felt sense of something that happened to you when you were five. Mm-hmm. And and it may be trying to work itself out and heal because you got triggered and it reminded you of that. Those are things that aren't even conscious. Yeah. They're, they're not things you can read a, you know, read a book about and go, this is how to fix that. It's um, those things are coming up for a reason mm-hmm. that, you know, you don't even consciously know, but by being with that part of you, you can help integrate it into your, your current existence. And it doesn't make the triggers go away. Um, but there are there are definitely ways now and and procedures and so on. One of them we do is called focusing. Mm-hmm. It helps us just be present with that part of us that's trying to tell us something. And it's definitely made things better. Mm-hmm. But to say we can't trust it is exactly the opposite of what's true. That yeah, there's one thing you can trust is your intuition. And I've ignored Laura's intuition. 
for many, many years. And we'd have been a lot better off if, <laughs> if both of us would have known how to listen to it Yeah, now in the early days. I mean, you can try your hardest to try and perceive truth, try to think your way to truth, try to try to like like a math problem, try to try to figure it out. But it's much easier in my experience just to feel it. What am I feeling? Right. Does this feel true? What am I feeling about this? I feel like we're taught so often in spiritual environments not to trust our feelings, but God gave us feelings. We didn't figure out feelings in an atheistic way. Our feelings and our intuition, our hearts, our minds, our guts are God-given to help us perceive and lead us to truth through the utilization of those things. And don't get me wrong, knowledge, knowledge has its place for sure, in terms of faith and religion, of course. But the, the personal aspect, you can know the entire Bible cover to cover and ace a quiz on, a test on biblical knowledge. But if you don't take it inside to you, you will never be able to achieve a deep, authentic, real connection. Truth can be truth, and truth will always be truth. Whatever, you know, we can always debate on what the truth is, but it's always out there. But until it's applied internally and we feel, we decide how we feel about that truth, it doesn't matter what it is because we're not using it in any useful way. It won't be able to affect us. Mm-hmm. It won't be able to change us or help us grow in any way. I can, I can recommend a couple of books for that. There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score that Lauren That's a big one. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I was struggling, when I was going through my dark night or whatever you want to call it, I read a book called Bringing Your Shadow Out of the Dark. Mm. And it was very, very helpful for me doing inner child work. It's by Robert Augustus Masters. It's called Bringing Your Shadow Out of the Dark. Mm -hmm. He also has a great book called Spiritual Bypassing, which also helped us a lot. That's a good, really good title for that, Shadow Out of the Dark. So one last question, and this is the question I ask every single guest. This podcast and my book are both based around the idea of crumpled papers, which symbolizes the ideas or beliefs that we may have at one time believed with full certainty, but at some point realized we needed to reevaluate our perspective on. So what for you guys are one or a few of the biggest or most important crumpled papers of your own that you've had to work through and reevaluate and ultimately gain a new understanding of? I think for me, it's the it goes back to, I can't trust myself, right? I think that's one I had to totally get rid of. But also this belief that I'm unworthy, mm. right? Or that I'm wretched or that I'm incredibly sinful. Yeah. I think the first time I really had to deconstruct those thoughts was the time I held my very first granddaughter. Which you do mention in your book. Yeah. Yes. So there was just, I, I, it's like, so, so out of body that I really have a hard time expressing that very moment to its fullest, but it really, it was almost as if I was outside of myself looking at me, just caressing this newborn baby and realizing like, there is nothing evil in her there's nothing wretched in her there's nothing sinful in her and in that moment the divine 
our souls speaking to one another, however you want to say that said, and the same is true about you. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wretched in you. There's nothing sinful and disgusting in you. So that is a huge, like wad of crumpled paper for me. Yeah. And I, and that needed to happen. It really did. Because first of all, I feel like that was really, even though I was emotionally detaching from the church, I feel like that was the beginning of this idea of deconstructing so many of those internal negative, destructive thoughts about not other people, which I did have those as well, but really about myself right? That I was just not like, I was worthless. And, and that was the beginning of kind of deconstructing, wadding up whatever metaphor you want to use and just throwing that crap. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't want to cuss into the fire, you know, just really getting rid of that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, you know, what Carl was talking about with trauma. I mean, that's, that's something I'm all, I'm always going to have to try to find that connection within myself to do because for so long, you know, we're both 58 and we've only been in this journey for, I don't know, five, six Six years, years. something like that. And so that that's a lot of deprogramming, right? (laughs) So it's, it's, I'm going to have my moments, but I'm grateful that I can use that visualization of, like you said, crumpling up that paper. That's not true. And we're going to get rid of that. Yeah, well said. It was just interesting thinking as you were talking. You said you guys were 58. And I was like, yeah, that's that's around my parents' age, give or take a couple of years on both ends. And I'm 24. And it was just interesting you talking about how how much time there is to unlearn or how much time quantified into things you had to learn that now you have to unlearn, right? Whereas I'm 30 something years younger. So, and I have 30 something years less of that time spent accruing things that were damaging or unhealthy, right? But yet I still feel like there is so much that I have to process and unlearn and heal from. And I love what you said about holding your, your granddaughter for the first time. And in your book, you, you go back to that in several different chapters as kind of like a, an anchor almost for a lot of your ideas. and. As you were talking, I was just thinking, man, that's so poetic of the comparison to how you're looking at your newborn granddaughter and how God looks at us, right? Mm -hmm. Just, and you you talked about hearing that voice saying, like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're perfect. And God is also, I feel like saying, he wants us to know that the way you're looking at this newborn child right now is the same way that I look at you. Yeah. Perfect. Exactly how I wanted you to be. Exactly the way I made you with all of your imperfections, Mm -hmm. but nothing bad or wretched or wrong. It's Mm -hmm. all right and good and pure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it allowed, you know, Carl had talked about that inner child work. I mean, it was as if I was speaking to my inner child, right. As I'm holding this newborn child, it was, if I was speaking to my own inner child saying there was never anything wretched or wrong with you. Yeah. Like never. And wow. I mean, the amount of healing that can start with just that speaking that to yourself is, is incredible. Absolutely. For me, it started with, we had at our church, the bikers against trafficking Mm. and they had a, a trafficked 
formerly traffic person that was there. And before the service even start, when the pastors were on stage and stuff, she was she asked the question like, you know, I prayed a lot while I was being trafficked, and I prayed every day, God, why do you allow this to happen to well, me? Well, even in the act of being, Re- yeah, repeated, you know, assaulted, yeah, and it, it caused me to start to question, God is in control, mm-hmm. and I assumed, and and stood on the fact that if God was God, that he could stand my questions. Yes. And I started to question it even from the pulpit, you know, kind of visually or audibly going through that wrestling match, wrestling with God is in control. But then I saw the shack <laughs> yeah. and the, uh, a lot of people's story probably have that in it. This, then I saw the shack. Yeah. The Sophia scene where Mac has to, he has to decide which one of his children he can essentially send to hell and he can't do it. And at the end of the movie, I said, I can't either. Yeah. And in the thought in my mind, probably after reading like a Brad Jerzak book or something and saying this idea of a retributive God mm. instead of a restorative God. Mm. And and the Bible kind of tells both stories that the God is kind of, yeah. kind of has a dual yeah. personality but in my mind, something shifted there, and I said, God cannot be retributive. And when I wrote my first book, it's called Apparent Faith. The model was uh, just putting side by side my experience parenting. But by, by then, most of our kids were gone. What was my experience as a parenting and stacking that against God? And just kind of wrestling with that idea that, that if, if there's a God, he can't be worse than me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because I couldn't send one of my children to hell. Yeah. So um, I still wrestle with with some of those things, but definitely, you know, hell and demons and Satan and things like that kind of started to to erase. And but it only takes about two beliefs at most churches because they say, "Let me get this straight, Carl. You don't believe in this, and you and you don't believe in this." <laughs> so. It's been not, you know, I'll pray for you or something, you know, you know. Yeah, we'll pray for you. Good luck. (laughs) I mean, just the statement and the belief that God can handle my questions is huge. Because I think, you know, part of, a big part of the fear that comes from questioning is the fear of being wrong, right? The fear of ending up going a different direction than not just what's prescribed by people, but like, but honestly, what by what you feel is true and ending up someplace that's not accurate. That's everyone's fear is living life in an inaccurate way to what actually is true. But the only way we're going to figure that out, the only way that God's going to be able to lead us to those questions or to those answers is by questioning it. Yeah. And we're going to get things wrong. We're going to question things that 10 years down the road, we're going to look back and go, oh, it's funny I even questioned that. But I'm glad I did because I at least either landed on a different perspective or just enhanced my original view, right? There's some things that, oh, that, that's weird. I was way off. But there's some, some things that I'm like, man, thank God I questioned that because otherwise I'd still believe right. this thing that is way off from what I believe is true now. Right. And even the fact that we believe that our questions can have the power to be that intrusive or offending to God, like mm-hmm. I, I really don't believe we have that much power. God created questions. He created questioning. He we do not hold the power to surprise him, to catch him off guard, to hand him something that he doesn't know what to do with or how to deal with. Like, 
we don't have that much power. And that's not a suppressing idea. That's a freeing idea where what we believe may be the boundary line is so far away from what it actually is because God can handle anything that we have the freedom to stretch our limbs a little bit and our minds and our hearts. Anyway, that's all I got. That, that's it. Thank you guys so much for coming on. This was a, a great episode. I love the, the conversation that we get to have. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. So guys, thank you for listening. If you're interested, please go check out Carl and Laura's book, Out Into the Desert. I will link it right down below in the description. And go check out their podcast, which is just tons and tons and tons of episodes of just people sharing their stories. It is the Desert Sanctuary Podcast. That's it for me. I will see you guys on next week's episode. Until then, peace out. Thanks for hanging with us on this episode of the Crumpled Papers Podcast. The episode may be over, but the conversation's just getting started. If you have any questions or comments, or just want to say hi, send us an email at crumpledpaperspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date with all things Crumpled Papers. All links are in the description. This is Austin, and I'll see you next time on the Crumpled Papers Podcast.